It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Mike Snyder, managing partner of RSM Marketing. RSM provides an outsourced marketing department to companies across all industries nationwide and focuses on the middle market. Mike helps business owners escape fruitless efforts and endless tactics and marketing spends that produces little to no ROI. Prior to RSM, Mike was CEO of a Kansas-based ad agency serving larger clients such as Cargill and Cox Communications. He also founded and sold a technology company. Mike is a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel who served as a public affairs officer in New York City, the Pentagon, and NORAD, where he led media relations in the aftermath of 9-11. He is a graduate of Marine Corps Command and Staff College and has also worked in the accounting and nonprofit industries. Mike has a master's degree in marketing communication from the University of Kansas and taught strategic marketing for years in an MBA program there where his unorthodox approach to marketing instructions earned him the highest student scores within the program. Mike Snyder, welcome into the corner office. Hello, Brant. Great to have you back. And uh, as we talked a couple of minutes ago, you're in beautiful Wichita, Kansas today, from what I understand. Yes, yeah, nice chilly fall day. Weather's Glad starting to, to get nice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm down in South Florida. It was 91, 93 up until two days ago. And then uh, yesterday morning, I woke up and it was 56 degrees. And I said, I'm going for a bike ride. So we're beginning to have the cooler weather here, too. So that's uh, awesome. God's grace. You guys deserve a break. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been a hot, hot summer. Well, Mike, we always like to get started talking a little bit about uh, our CEO guests in their early years. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up, uh, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Yeah, you know, I mean, my dad <clears throat> was in the Marine Corps. As a matter of fact, if anybody's ever seen the movie The Great Santini with Robert Duvall, that was my dad. No mm. kidding. He uh, flew uh, F-4s in the uh, Marine Corps during the Vietnam War and then uh, was one of the first 13 pilots to incubate the Harrier program after the Vietnam War. So I, I grew up, you know, with the great Santini. Yeah, yeah, I'd mow the yard. He'd come out and inspect it. I didn't get liberty, which is basically, you know, running around with your friends until the inspection passed. And a lot of times it didn't pass. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, born in Indiana, raised all over the country, uh, spent a lot of time in Yuma, Arizona, you know, which is a border town, one mile from Mexico, one mile from California. And as they like to say, one mile from hell. <laughs> Brothers and sisters? Uh, yeah, one sister. Yeah, 
cool. And mom uh, just kind of kept the family together as you walked around or did she or moved around or did she have different work? Uh, no, you know, pretty much a homemaker. I mean, she was, you know, elementary school teacher for a bit and then just kind of odd jobs throughout the, uh, the years. Now, mom and dad actually both ended up being uh, pastors right. uh, of, of a church. So dad, uh, you know, that was what he did after he retired from the Marine Corps. He retired at age 38. Can you believe that? That's nice. He right. joined probably at 18 or something, right? He sure did. Yeah, you can't yeah. do that anymore. Uh, but, yeah. you know, he was an officer. He was a Mustang, they call it, when you're an enlisted guy who becomes an officer. So did he become a pastor right away after he graduated from uh, the Marine Corps, so to speak? Well, you know, he, he kind of did. You know, he um, he became kind of like the executive pastor of a church down there, Mount Zion there in Yuma. And then he went to a Kenneth Hagin's Bible College and kind of got his degree and, you know, training and then went back to he went to phoenix and started a church he is also an entrepreneur and you grew up in a church home no he was a uh atheist <laughs> oh okay but you did though you by the time that you came around Mom well i was raised you. catholic okay. All right. you know and then we transitioned about when i was in fourth grade and pretty much went to charismatic honestly and um now an evangelical so what, what a path yeah cool what were some of the major things you remember from mom and dad, other than the inspection after every chore being done around the house? Well, you know, I mean, it was such a different time, right? I mean, they were boomers and I mean, you know, um, both very loving, you know, dad was a little distant, you know, because he was, uh, well, you know, he was overseas for three years of my, of my youth, you know, before I was 10, he had, he had spent three years in Japan, you know, cause that's what Marines do. You know, you go on float or you're, you know, you have a year unaccompanied away, you know, in some foreign country. So, uh, yeah, he was a little distant, but that made, you know, the rest of us very close, mom and, and me and my sister. Any other influencers, uh, you know, teachers or coaches or folks that had an impact on your life in those early years? Well, you know, it was interesting because, you know, I've uh, I've always kind of been like a, a nice guy, you know, and not what I would call driven or type A. It's when I got into high school, um, it became competitive. And, 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 and to answer your question, that was very striking to me. I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I do have this competitive streak. I want to compete for like, you know, the best GPA, you know, I want to be in these honors programs, AP classes. And so I found myself very competitive and, and that, that lasted as a matter of fact, you know, when I uh, later went into the Marine Corps, all lieutenants have to go through this thing called the basic school. And out of 232 lieutenants in my, in my class, I graduated 15th. And it wasn't necessarily, and I think this is very important for the rest of the story, it wasn't what I would call a goal. It was just a standard of excellence that you know exists to this day because of what I experienced in high school. You either decide you're going to compete, so to speak, and have that standard of excellence that results in achievement, or you're not going to. And I chose to, I chose to if that makes any sense. So you're a pretty good student in school, it sounds like. Yeah, I was a very good, I was a very good, you know, and I'm a natural, you know, what I would call, you know, standard education learner. You know, I didn't have any hangups that way. What about other activities? Did you get involved in sports, music, theater, debate? No, really, you know, my, um, the other thing that, you know, really influenced me from a very, you know, young age was, you know, uh, the Jesus movement. I mean, you know, I was a, uh, youth and teen during the 1970s. So, you know, uh, matter of fact, that the movie Jesus Revolution just came out. And I mean, that was pretty much the story of my upbringing. So, you know, I spent sometimes every day of the week at church 
I mean, there were two services on Sunday, then there might have been a revival. So you're there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then you have youth, you know, youth group on Friday. <laughs> Saturday, you're out there going door to door. No kidding. So, I mean, I mean, that was very intense. And that was really my, my extracurricular activities for the most part during high was school. There a, was there a youth pastor or someone that you met during that period that had an impression on you or inspired you in any way? You know, it's so interesting. No, and I would not say I would not say so. I mean, honestly, the the teacher that I you know really most influenced me uh, was my freshman. Was a freshman. I was a senior in high school. He was a former uh, Army Special Forces guy, former Hell's Angel. You know, J- Joe Gilmer. <laughs> I remember his name. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you know, he just was badass, you know, without trying. And I don't know, he just kind of spoke to your life and even ways that you can't even articulate, but it was just, uh, yeah, left a striking impression as far as he'd come up and say, you know, you can do better than that. Mm -hmm. Come on. What are you doing? Don't sandbag. Okay. Push competitively. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned dad was an entrepreneur. What, What about you? Did you have any entrepreneurial things you did when you were younger? Yeah, I, I guess you could say my uh, honestly, my first, my first uh, job was as a newspaper boy. <laughs> was thirteen years old, and I got assigned this uh, paper route on base. So I was, you know, at the uh, on base, you know, in Yuma, and I think I had fifty, you know, you know, subscribers on my route. And then they ran a contest. No kidding, right? So the Yuma Daily Sun ran a sales, sales contest for all the paper boys. And during that span of 90 days that they ran the, the contest, I, I tripled my newspaper route. Nice. And I did it by, you know, uh, market expansion. <laughs> that was my strategy, right? So I was delivering papers with the, uh, the, amongst the family housing. I decided to go to the barracks with the single Marines and assign them up too. And that had never been done before. So, yeah, I won the sales contest. I, I got to go to Disneyland in California as a result. Cool. All expenses paid. That's it. I love it. That's great. What about some other jobs? Anything during high school or your early uh, college years that you did that uh, you know were memorable and made an imprint on you? You know, so yeah, you know, I mean, the second job I ever had was I was a busboy at this buffet, you know, and and, and uh, all the tour buses going from Phoenix to San Diego would swing by Yuma and disgorge for lunch or dinner. And so, you know, that's when you learned how to really work your butt off. You know, so on one hand, my, my very first job was as a sales guy, you know, and I was working hard. The second job was just really working hard, you know, just hard work. And then uh, another job that really made an impression was um, I was, a uh, again, a senior in high school. Between uh, that and going to college, I was a fuller brush man. Ah. For those of you who remember what a fuller brush man was. And that was the, the back then that was 1989. And that's when they had all these big boxes dedicated to ceiling fans because ceiling fans are relatively a new creation. And so Fuller Brush came, I was going door to door in, in, you know, Broken Arrow, these suburban lots are like five acres. And I'm, I'm going door to door walking five acre lots. So not very smart. So Fuller Brush came out with the world's first ceiling fan duster brush. And I grabbed that thing and I decided I was going to go from B to C to B to B. So I started going to these ceiling fan stores. I would just walk in with a brush and literally somebody down in Iowa would go, I just bought a ceiling fan and I need that brush. I sold a thousand brushes in a week 
Nice. Now, what was the correlation there? How did you see the connection between the two? I, I don't know, Brand. I mean, that's kind of the mysterious thing, even in sales and marketing and running a business. It just seemed natural, you know. So I just knew that nobody had it. And everybody who probably wanted it started at a ceiling fan store. As a matter of fact, a Fuller Brush hauled me into their headquarters in Great Bend, Kansas, to their executive team on a weekend wanting to know how I was selling all these brushes. <laughs> I mean, I'm 18. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you told them the story. I said, I just walk in with the brush, which is a picture is worth a thousand words. And I don't, I didn't bother with, you know, the catalog and all this other stuff. That's great. Yeah. Was it clear that you'd go to college? Oh yeah. It was a foregone conclusion. And I had a four year ROTC scholarship to help pay for it or basically paid for the whole thing. Uh, and uh, that was Navy when I was a Marine option, which is how I got into the Marine Corps upon graduation. And where did you do your ROTC? Uh, University of Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, were, were you based there then? Was dad based there at that time? Or what made you well, yeah, that's when dad was. Well, actually, no. So, yeah, I, I graduated high school from Broken Arrow because dad was going to Kenneth Hagin Bible College. And I had a girlfriend who became a wife, and she was going to Oklahoma State. And uh, so I went to o University of Oklahoma, where she ultimately transferred. And the day that I graduated college, I, I became a second lieutenant and uh, also got married that night. Awesome. <laughs> and then how many years did you spend in service? Uh, well, ultimately, I, I ended up spending 24 years uh, on active duty and the reserves. You know, um, I'm a, I was a public affairs guy, had a journalism undergrad, so went into public affairs and have, have had just the most, most unorthodox, you know, experiences in the Marine Corps. I mean, the very first, my very first duty station was New York City. Wow. You know, and, and so, you know, so thankful to God and the U.S. Marine Corps for just the incredible experiences I mean, nobody could have told me to, to go to New York City. I'd say, no, I'm not doing that. But when Did the Marine Corps says- a base there or training or why? You know, they had a little public affairs office with yeah. four Marines interacting with basically the rest of the world through New York. Wow. And, you know, and representing the Marine Corps' interests with various stakeholders, you know. Awesome. And, and what were made me who I am today. Yeah. What were some of those responsibilities then? Oh, my gosh. Well, we did media relations- and so, you know, Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, you know, occurred while, you know, I was in New York City. And so we interacted with the international, you know, media answering all kinds of questions about the Marine Corps and gas masks and blah, blah, blah. That was one. We also interacted with the PR and entertainment industries, you know, uh, as consultants on shoots, you know, regarding uh, the Marine Corps, you know, whether it's a uniform uh, or it's even a color of a paint. <laughs> they wanted a name after some sort of Marine Corps label. And so we did that. And then uh, really government relations and what I would call institutional relations. Like, you know, we were down in Wall Street a lot, New York Stock Exchange, just, you know, um, making sure that basically, our, our, you know, our mission was making sure that America and all of the subsets understand the relevancy of the Marine Corps today, you know, regardless of how it fit in with that with them. Also, what a great, great opportunity. What a yeah, great opportunity. did totally. they give you some leadership responsibilities early on? Well, yeah, you know, my boss got deployed, right? So I was working for a major, and here I was a second lieutenant. He got deployed to the sand, you know, uh, Kuwait, right? Immediately, this is nineteen ninety ninety one, and so I uh, I ended up, ended up running the office as a basically a new college grad, new officer, major market you know, taking orders from the Pentagon and executing it there in New York City. So yeah, it was a lot of a lot of responsibility very quickly. 
they started managing people pretty early on. Were they were they like you, fairly young graduates, or were they people that had you know been doing that job for a long time? And you no, know, as a matter of fact, I mean they were two salty sergeants, right? Because only four of us. So here's this 22 year old, and that is the glory of the military. Is you know these these young officers, right? They get kicked out of college and, and officer training. Next thing you know, they're managing you know salty sergeants who've been in in the service for 15 years. Right. You know, that's, you know, that, that's something else. It's, it's uh, on one hand, you know, it's humbling. So that's why the Marine Corps believes in this model of servant leadership. On the other hand, it's challenging because you got to, you got to learn and keep up with these guys and gals. Right. Right. What was the toughest part about that job, that first one you had with those folks? Honestly, the, um, the, the toughest part of it was the creative aspect of strategy, the creative aspect of marketing and the creative aspect of sales, because there was no handbook for how to engage in these communities in New York, you had to get very, very creative, you know. And I put together uh, strategic partnerships with the Marines and the Radio City Rockettes and with Marines and Dictaphone, you know, with Marines and MCI Telecom, you know, to do good things, mostly in like the, uh, the charitable space. But, you know, it was just had to be created out of thin air. And, and that's really what, if you will, you know, helped create my ability later to get into advertising. Right. Did you stay then for the 20 plus years you're in the Marine Corps and in, in the PA area? The- well, yeah, you know, so I got out of the Marines after four years, but then I kept getting calls from the Pentagon. My wife would say, I'd come home at the end of the day and she'd go, yeah, I got another a call from the Pentagon. They want you to go to Europe. Yeah, you got another call from the Pentagon. They want you to go to the NAACP National Convention in Minneapolis. And before you knew it, I decided to make the Marine Corps Reserve a hobby. It was my hobby. Got it. And uh, so, yeah, I did 24 years in the reserve. I got uh, mobilized two times, you know, subsequent to getting out. You went to NORAD over 9-11, was a media relations officer there. Just mind-blowing experience. And uh, that that really caused me to want to become a business owner after, you know, uh, that exposure at NORAD over 9-11. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that. How, how did you kind of get engaged with that? And uh, what were some of the, you know, contributions you made during that period? Well, you know, so, you know, on 9-11, having lived in New York, I mean, I was at NORAD. I just happened to be doing my, my you know, uh, two weeks of active duty a year. And um, if anybody remembers, you know, uh, America and the entire world blame NORAD, whose mission is aerospace, aerospace defense over North America, for not shooting down the airliners. Mm. And so the entire world, you know... <laughs> Started calling on 9/11. Started calling NORAD and got me or one of the other two media officers, you know, and we began 24/7 operations. So the two contributions really, you know, is I would say uh, comes uniquely. And you know, your listeners might enjoy this little story. But immediately, what happened was in a crisis. You know, this was a multi-service. You know, I mean, there were Canadians, Army, Air Force, Navy, and I was the only Marine. And so in a crisis, these, these, these officers defaulted to the cultures of their services. And this actually happened. So the Air Force said, you know, and the Pentagon was offline. We couldn't get a hold of anybody at the Pentagon for guidance. They were our higher headquarters. So the office said, or the, the Air Force said, hey, we need to have lots of meetings, lots of meetings about this before we talk to anybody. The Navy said, we're not going to talk to anybody, meaning the media, until we get approval from higher headquarters. But higher headquarters was offline. The Army said, and they actually said this, we're still pissed off, at, pardon the French, at the media because of Vietnam, so we don't have to tell them anything. 
actually said that. And I was a Marine, and the Marines were like, look, we can't say nothing. We have to say something. And so pretty much, you know, we deferred the media interviews until, you know, uh, you know, some of those requirements were met. And I, I had the overnight watch, so midnight on, on, on 9-11 going into 9-12, you know, I got a frantic call from a uh, Denver news station and who's the producer said, uh, Major Snyder, you got to help us. You know, callers are in tears. They think that we're under attack because they hear jets in the sky. And, and I said, well, I can't tell you where we're flying combat air patrols, but I can tell you, you know, that we're awake. The men and women of NORAD, we're doing our job so that you guys can sleep. And, you know, if you hear the sounds, it's likely the sounds of freedom. Right. And that became our policy for the next year. Give people the calmness and the uh, assurance that they were uh, being protected. That's correct. You, you, if you can't tell them exactly what you're doing, say something, right? Don't say nothing. So yeah. during that time you were in the reserves, then you got into the marketing area. Did you find your first company or did you work for other people before you? you know, oh my gosh, right. Yeah, I went into accounting. I went into the accounting category for three years and I got mobilized, went back. And that's when I you know, went into the advertising space and uh, working with my, my now current business partner uh, at an ESOP. The first ESOP in Kansas, employee-owned company, right? Became an ESOP in 1972. And so I ultimately became, you know, a CEO in the advertising space uh, running an ESOP, which is just horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I did not like running that ESOP. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Too many people voting or what was the... uh, the No, exactly. I mean, I felt like I was running for office every single day. Yeah. You know, you just don't have the authority that a founder has. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very old agency. So Bruce and I, you know, we, we tripled uh, agency revenues in three years and ultimately founded our own company and, you know, grew that to be a $10 million firm. Well, and, and it's ongoing today. I got very lucky to, you know, if you want to call it that, you know, luck is simply what preparation meeting opportunity. So I was prepared and I met Bruce, who's a, uh, he died in the wool real ad guy. I and mean, he worked at all these large ad agencies all over the world. And we both just happened to, you know, pretty much be raising our families in Wichita, Kansas. And so, you know, we've been together now 20 years. We've started multiple companies. You know, we've got a parking company, a commercial real estate company, a property management company, ad agency, marketing firm or consulting firm. So, yeah, it just continues to expand. The value of a partner is immeasurable if you can find the right one. How did you meet that partner? Uh, You know, we were introduced by the president of the Wichita Convention and Visitors Bureau, I was talking to John back in the day about how I wanted to consult with middle market companies and Quonset huts all over Kansas because, of course, I was just, you know, intrigued with what people create in the middle of nowhere with a team of 10 people, you know, products leading in their category globally. It's true. He goes, my gosh, Mike, you sound just like this other crazy dude named Bruce. You ought to meet him. <laughs> so we had lunch and the rest is history. That's great. That's great. You know, they say that the only ship that doesn't float as a partnership, but it sounds like you've kind of uh, debunked that theory. Well, bro, I'll tell you, I have been through, I don't know, maybe seven other partners who didn't make the cut. When I say I, me and Bruce, because we've, we've acquired, we acquired two companies over those years and had financial investors, you know, and none of them survived. And we got out, we got the financial investors out, got our acquired partners out. And, and the only reason is because they could not and chose not to keep up. When did you write your first book? 
Uh, you know, that was um, right around this time a year ago, and it was published six months later. So, yeah, published in 2023. It's The Great Marketing Lie, Six Truths for Business Owners and CEO or C-Suiters. And it's really what I would call uh, a guidebook on, uh, you know, uh, strategic marketing principles. What were some of those? Can you share them with us? Sure. I mean, the, the, the very first one is differentiation. You know, basically the premise of the book is, and the great marketing lie itself is, marketing is hard. And marketing is not hard. Marketing communications is hard. What I do for a living is marketing communications. That's very hard. That's all the marketing jazz that has to be put together correctly. But marketing itself is not. And so there's fundamental principles like, you know, differentiation, you know, and there's models in the book. One of them I love and I won't really go into, but it's repositioning your competition. And there's an actual model in the book, which anybody can run through themselves or with their management team, which can uh, put them into a blue ocean environment very quickly from red ocean. Most folks start businesses and run businesses in the red ocean because there's not enough differentiation. All right. So that's one principle. Second principle is a the cheater tool for marketing strategy. I mean, a lot, a lot of companies don't have the pricing power that they want. They don't have the sales that they want because they really don't have a marketing strategy. They're just out there hawking their product, you know, like anybody else in the category. And I'm not talking about small businesses. I'm talking about businesses that are, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue, right? Because that's our space is that we work in is one million to about a quarter of a billion dollars in revenue. That's where we operate. So you see all these companies and, you know, principals scrambling when really they just don't understand the value of marketing strategy and how to get to it. And I'll just tell you, this, the cheater tool that works so well is how do you make it easier for your customer? Mm. That is the cheater tool to marketing strategy. You answer that question, boil it down to one to three words, and you can uh, know how to grow your business. You want a little story real quick? Sure, absolutely. We were working with a company that sold LED boards, big billboards to uh, you know uh, retail size boards. And they wanted to move into you know uh, the uh, small business owner space. And so we, we consulted with them on how to do that and we you know asked them the question, right? How can you make it easier for small business people to work with you? And we found out that, you know, nobody offered online pricing. I mean, you can go price and buy an island on eBay, but you can't get the price for an LED, LED board. And yet these, we knew these small business owners were likely doing a lot of their research online because, you know, 75% of research in the, in, the, in the business space is done online before anybody calls anybody. And so we said, why don't you offer online pricing? That would make it easier. Hmm. And they didn't like it. They belly ached, but finally they did it. And they ended up selling a million dollars that first year, which was a lot, you know, uh, there's a lot of orders. And they found out that, you know, the, uh, uh, their customers would come back for, you know, repurchase for 4X. And so that segment turned into a multi-million dollar opportunity, all because of the marketing strategy of online pricing. Hmm. And so that's, you know, that's how making it easier fit for them. Makes good sense. Love it. And you've written a second book. I understand it's just uh, being launched this week. Tell us a little bit about that. I know, right? Well, <clears throat> when I got out of the Marine Corps the first time, I became a licensed minister. It means I could bury you, but I couldn't marry you. 
And that was in uh, Staten Island, New York, the largest Protestant church or non-Catholic church in, you know, in Staten Island, about 3,000 people. And so I became a licensed minister. And, you know, ever since then, you know, I've just been a big observer of, you know, how God works in people's lives. And I've had the privilege of hiring hundreds of young people and seeing them listless and they don't know the source of their values. You know, I, I ask, you know, hey, you know, what do you intend to do with your life? What's the source of your values? They don't know. So after, you know, living my life, I'm now 56 years old. I'm, I figured out a few things, especially if you apply certain scriptures, right? And so um, I wrote a book. It's called The Formula for Knowing God's Will for Christians, Agnostics, and Atheists. Mm. <laughs> it. And it's, uh, it's on Amazon uh, as of this week, as a matter of fact. And again, share with us some of the principles from there. Oh, you know, it's, you know, I'll share, you know, uh, God's will for anybody. And by the way, when I sat down to write this book, I had an outline and, and God basically told me, no, no, throw that away. I want you to also make this relevant for agnostics and atheists. My hands started to shake. I couldn't, I can't, I don't know how to do that. He goes, well, I do. So just shut up and you start writing and I'll, 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 I'll write this for you. And he did. And so really it's like Christians believe in God and agnostics believe maybe in the power of the universe right? Working on my behalf. And atheists maybe don't believe anything, but I say, look, you, even your intuition is working for your best. So in this book, it's like, okay, God, the universe, or your own intuition to do two things. And, 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 and there's two wills of, of God. And that is one, who you are. And I'm not making this stuff up. This is what's wonderful, right? It's like, look, I'm not a theologian. I don't have to overcomplicate this stuff. I'm not writing it for other PhDs or D-mens. I'm just a I'm common guy, you know? And so I've lived this and I've, I, I've, I've, I've seen the results. And so, yeah, absolutely. God, God first cares about who you are. And that's, that's transformation. Just like the U.S. Marine Corps has a strategy of transformation. So I actually was able to bring the Marine Corps in, right, to talk about, uh, you know, who you are today and, and who you are tomorrow, and it's a lifelong journey. And so that's the first will of God, who you are. After that, he cares about what you do, of course. And that's where really all of the rest of us are like more, more concerned. What am I going to do with my life? And so we talk about how can you know what it is God wants you to do? Would you like the payoff for that? Sure, absolutely. Well, there's the formula, right? So, you know, there's scripture that says it's he that works inside of you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, honestly, you know, the, the, the first directive, who you are, is the values, of course, that, you know, in, in the Bible, or even just good common sense values in the rest of the world. And then the second is, you know, what you do and how you know what to do is when you have something in your head that you can't shake and it's also confirmed in your heart and you can't shake it, you do that. That's what you do. And you stop thinking and you accept it. You maybe you prove it out over a matter of weeks or maybe a matter of months. And then there's all kinds of things that happen from there. <laughs> right. Right. And that's the book talks a lot about what happens from there because it's not easy. Awesome. Great. Well, yeah. those listeners will know where to find it. Available on Amazon? Yeah, that's correct. Terrific. Mike, you've built a lot of companies over your career, and it sounds like you and Bruce are continuing to do so. Tell us a little bit about company culture. You know, what do you, what do, you do in terms of kind of establishing those principles as you get these companies up and running? 
Well, Brand, that's an excellent question, you know, because, of course, the old adage is, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And it does, you know, because you can have the best strategy in the world. And if you don't have a culture uh, solid enough, you know, the execution will falter. Uh, and you'll you'll fail, and so here's I have a very specific answer for that. So we we had just acquired our first company. It was you know two companies of, of the same size, about twenty people each. So small acquisition, but you know it was a big bite to eat for you know being you know equal sized, and we were high growth, and uh, all of a sudden everything came to a grinding halt because you know everybody wanted to set up all these rules based on the acquisition, right? Two teams, one was very rules-based, the other one is very freedom-based. And so we got a hold, we, we have a cultural problem here. We got cats and dogs. Hmm. And so we got a hold of, at that time, so funny what people put on online. And so Netflix, I'm sure, had spent, I don't know, maybe a million dollars with you know HR consultants developing their culture model. And then somebody put the whole thing on the internet. And so Bruce found it on a Saturday around midnight and tossed it to me. And I looked at it on Sunday and went, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, and from, and it's, it was about a hundred page PowerPoint and their whole, their whole premise there was um, all around this idea of, uh, you know, um, oh, hang, stunning colleagues. The culture is around stunning colleagues, which means you don't tolerate mediocrity. You bring on and retain the best talent and they can't be brilliant jerks. These are their words, not mine. And so we had brilliant jerks in the company. Mm-hmm. You know, we had people who weren't so good because mediocrity, according to this culture model, you know, of the, the stunning colleague culture model, mediocrity drives out the talent because the talent doesn't want to be around mediocrity. So you have to drive the mediocrity out of the business. And the other thing you got to drive out of the business is stunning or is brilliant jerks because they'll also run, run out the talent, the, run away the talent. The, uh, the second corollary is you have to give them freedom. You can't have a rules-based culture, right? You know, and, and, and it's a brilliant little uh, model. Anybody who wants to contact me, I'll actually send them, you know, the, the presentation because for growth companies, it's, you know, it, it talks about accountability. It's not one of these horrible cultures that says, yes, you know, here are the 15 values that we embrace, which are basically, hey, we're not prisoners. We're, you know, we're not in jail, like honesty and, you know, integrity. Well, that, that's, that's the bar. That's not a culture, right? And so, yeah, we had a very specific culture model, and uh, we measured it year after year after year, employee surveys, and, you know, uh, we've always done stunningly well. I mean, one year we got 100%, you know, at the top line measurement as far as satisfaction with the company and the, and the culture. And that's stunning because, you know, we tend to hire young people who are very critical. Right. <laughs> you know, they've never worked at a place before. They want to, you know, find the problems and contribute to the solutions, so we allow them to do that, too. You know, yeah, meant all the difference in the world. What do you specifically look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and hire? Well, learned over the years, you know, that's a very, we learned uh, two things. The first, the first one was, you know, and Bruce worked at Coke Industries for a while and they had market-based management there. And one of the principles is hire for values, teach the skills. Hmm. So when we uh, started our company, uh, we were high growth. We were a million dollar company within a year. And so we were hiring people off the street and uh, they had horrible values they, and mediocre skills because they were on the street, but they were available. And we were so miserable after about a year of running our company that we almost shut it down. Mm. 
because they were mean people. I ended up calling that whole model meanie heads, people who are mean, people who are fearful, people who are, who are afraid of their, of, of, you know, failing. And uh, we decided at that point in time, because Bruce said, well, you know, we need to start hiring for values and teach the skills that we may have to teach. And so we started doing that. And that's when we began to turn the company around. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. What about uh, interview techniques? If you had to share what you think is most effective in terms of selecting people that have well, thank you. That's right. So exactly. So if we're hiring for values, then of course one of the first questions you ask is, "What are your values?" And this is actually what helped me lead let led up to writing the Formula for God's Will books. I realized people really don't these youngsters anymore, they don't have, because, you know, so many of them aren't going to church or being raised in Sunday school and that kind of a thing. So they say, well, my value is to be a good person. Okay, well, define that. Well, I really don't know. I mean, they really don't know what values are. It's like, you know, like is, you know, patience a value, collaboration a value, loyalty a value. So, you know, but anyway, ask the, ask, you know, the source of your values or what, what are your values? That's one. Two, and this is how I do my interviews. Talk to me about collaboration. Talk to me about success or failure that you've had with the team. Because in professional services, which is my category, you know, you got to get it done with the team. This isn't like running a lathe, I suppose, in a manufacturing plant. Of course, all your manufacturing folks out there are going to say, it's more than just running a lathe. I, I get it. I get it. I'm just saying. And then the third thing I always ask is, you know, there's no perfect person. So what is your greatest strength? And I got to tell you, this is hugely important. Tell me your, your greatest strength. And then let's talk about the 180 of that, because your greatest strength, the opposite of it, is your greatest weakness. And we're here to compensate for that. We're not here to criticize that. We're here to help you ameliorate that greatest weakness. Case in point. Yeah. Creative people, that's their strength. Their weakness can't manage anything. <laughs> They're not managers. They need help, right? And so that's that's an example, you know, of how you run. I run an interview, and anybody, you know, somebody who can get through those questions pretty well, they've all they they've generally turned out to be a very good employee. Awesome, Mike. We're just about out of time. You've been very generous. I appreciate that. But we always have one last question. We asked all our CEO guests, and that's kind of what career and life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes on their own corner office someday. Wow. You know, I'll tell you what. Um, courage. You're going to put yourself out there. And collaboration. One of the best things I ever did was join Vistage, mm. you know, uh, world's largest organization of CEOs, you know, and I had to pay two, two grand a month for a long time. I was in it for 20 years. And uh, that allowed me to expedite my learning as a young you know, executive, young CEO, and to achieve more than I thought possible. Because, of course, uh, Harvard Business Review showed that in a study, three people make a genius, right? Three people. Any three people, random people, can pass the Mensa test. And so when you are collaborative as, as, a, as, a, as an executive, maybe it's through the Chamber of Commerce, maybe it's through a, you know, a formatted group like Vistage, uh, you get to genius level uh, faster. Cool. Anything else to add? Yeah, I couldn't have done this at all without God. You know, so, <laughs> uh, hats off. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your, your help. Amen. Well, Mike Snyder, managing partner of RSM Marketing, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.